Section 48 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1 by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mrs. Sheridan, Itard 54. This rupture with Sheridan deprived Johnson of one of his most agreeable resources for amusement in his lonely evenings. For Sheridan's well-informed, animated and bustling mind never suffered conversation to stagnate, and Mrs. Sheridan, footnote, Johnson is thus mentioned by Mrs. Sheridan in a letter dated Blois, November the 16th, 1743, according to the Garrick correspondence, but the date is wrongly given as the Sheridans went to Blois in 1764. I have heard Johnson decry some of the prettiest pieces of writing we have in English. Yet Johnson is an honourable man, that is to say, he is a good critic, and in other respects a man of enormous talents. End of and Mrs. Sheridan was a most agreeable companion to an intellectual man. She was sensible, ingenious, unassuming, yet communicative. I recollect with satisfaction many pleasing hours which I passed with her under the hospitable roof of her husband, who was to me a very kind friend. Her novel, entitled Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph, contains an excellent moral, while it inculcates a future state of retribution. Footnote. My position has been very well illustrated by Mr. Belsham of Bedford in his essay on dramatic poetry. The fashionable doctrine, says he, both of moralists and critics in these times, is that virtue and happiness are constant concomitants, and it is regarded as a kind of dramatic impiety to maintain that virtue should not be rewarded nor vice punished, in the last scene of the last act of every tragedy. This conduct in our modern poets is, however, in my opinion, extremely injudicious. For it labours in vain to inculcate a doctrine in theory which every one knows to be false in fact, namely, that virtue in real life is always productive of happiness and vice of misery. Thus Congreve concludes the tragedy of the mourning bride with the following foolish couplet. For blessings ever wait on virtuous deeds, and though elate, a sure reward succeeds. When a man eminently virtuous, a Brutus, a Cato, or a Socrates, finally sinks under the pressure of accumulated misfortune, we are not only led to entertain a more indignant hatred of vice than if he rose from his distress, but we are inevitably induced to cherish the sublime idea that a day of future retribution will arrive, when he shall receive not merely poetical, but real and substantial justice. Essays Philosophical, Historical and Literary, London, 1791 this is well reasoned and well expressed. I wish indeed that the ingenious author had not thought it necessary to introduce any instance of a man eminently virtuous, 
as he would then have avoided mentioning such a ruffian as Brutus under that description. Mr. Beltram discovers in his essays so much reading and thinking and good composition that I regret his not having been fortunate enough to be educated a member of our excellent national establishment. Had he not been nursed in nonconformity, he probably would not have been tainted with those heresies, as I sincerely and on no slight investigation think them, both in religion and politics, which, while I read I am sure with candour, I cannot read without offence. Boswell. Boswell's position has been illustrated with far greater force by Johnson. It has been the boast of some swelling moralists that every man's fortune was in his own power, that prudence supplied the place of all other divinities, and that happiness is the unfailing consequence of virtue. But surely the quiver of omnipotence is stored with arrows against which the shield of human virtue however adamantine it has been boasted, is held up in vain. We do not always suffer by our crimes, we are not always protected by our innocence. The Adventurer, number 120, see also Rasselas, chapter 27, end of footnote. A novel entitled Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph contains an excellent moral, while it inculcates a future state of retribution. And what it teaches is impressed upon the mind by a series of as deep distress as can affect humanity in the amiable and pious heroine who goes to her grave unrelieved but resigned and full of hope of heaven's mercy. Johnson paid her this high compliment upon it I know not, madam, that you have a right upon moral principles to make your readers suffer so much. Footnote. Charles Fox said that Mrs. Sheridan Sidney Biddulph was the best of all modern novels. By the by, R. B. Sheridan used to declare that he had never read it. Rogers's Table Talk, page 90. The editor says in a note on this passage, The incident in the school for scandal of Sir Oliver's presenting himself to his relations in disguise is manifestly taken by Sheridan from his mother's novel. End of footnote. Mr. Thomas Davies, Anno Domini, 1763. Mr. Thomas Davies, the actor, who then kept a bookseller's shop in Russell Street, Covent Garden, Footnote. Number eight. The very place where I was fortunate enough to be introduced to the illustrious subject of this work deserves to be particularly marked. I never pass by it without feeling reverence and regret. Boswell. End of footnote. Told me that Johnson was very much his friend and came frequently to his house where he more than once invited me to meet him, but by some unlucky accident or other he was prevented from coming to us. 
mr thomas davies was a man of good understanding and talents with the advantage of a liberal education Footnote. johnson said sir davies has learning enough to give credit to a clergyman post seventeen eighty in mr langton's collection the spiteful stevens thus wrote about davies his concern ought to be with the outside of books but dr johnson dr percy and some others have made such a coxcomb of him that he is now hardy enough to open volumes turn over their leaves and give his opinions of their contents did i ever tell you an anecdote of him about ten years ago i wanted the oxford homer and called at davies to ask for it as i had seen one thrown about his shop will you believe me when i assure you that he told me he had but one and that he kept for his own reading garrick correspondence in the footnote though somewhat pompous he was an entertaining companion and his literary performances footnote johnson writing to beattie post august twenty first seventeen eighty says mr davies has got great success as an author generated by the corruption of a bookseller his principal works are memoirs of garrick seventeen eighty and dramatic miscellanies seventeen eighty four footnote his literary performances have no inconsiderable share of merit he was a friendly and very hospitable man both he and his wife who has been celebrated for her beauty footnote churchill in the rosciad thus celebrated his wife and mocked his recitation with him came mighty davies on oh my life that davies has a very pretty wife statesman all over in plots amos groan he mouths a sentence as curs mouth a bone churchill's poems see post under april the twentieth seventeen sixty four and march the twentieth seventeen seventy eight charles lamb in a note to his essay on the tragedies of shakespeare says of davies that he is recorded to have recited the paradise lost better than any man in england in his day though i cannot help thinking there must be some mistake in this tradition lamb's works eighteen forty edition and a footnote both he and his wife who has been celebrated for her beauty though upon the stage for many years maintained an uniform decency of character and johnson esteemed them and lived in as easy an intimacy with them as with any family which he used to visit mr davies recollected several of johnson's remarkable sayings and was one of the best of the many imitators of his voice and manner while relating them he increased my impatience more and more to see the extraordinary man whose works i highly valued and whose conversation was reported to be so peculiarly excellent mr davies back parlour i type fifty four boswell's introduction to johnson and a domini seventeen sixty three his first record of johnson's talk at last on monday the sixteenth of may 
when i was sitting in mr davies back parlour after having drunk tea with him and mrs davies johnson unexpectedly came into the shop Footnote. mr murphy in his essay on the life and genius of dr johnson page one hundred and six has given an account of this meeting considerably different from mine i am persuaded without any consciousness of error his memory at the end of near thirty years has undoubtedly deceived him and he supposes himself to have been present at a scene which he has probably heard inaccurately described by others in my note taken on the very day in which i am confident i marked everything material that passed no mention is made of this gentleman and i am sure i should not have omitted one so well known in the literary world it may easily be imagined that this my first interview with dr johnson with all its circumstances made a strong impression on my mind and will be registered with peculiar attention Boswell, end of footnote. johnson unexpectedly came into the shop and mr davies having perceived him through the glass door in the room in which we were sitting advancing towards us he announced his awful approach to me somewhat in the manner of an actor in the part of horatio when he addresses hamlet on the appearance of his father's ghost look my lord it comes i found that i had a very perfect idea of johnson's figure from the portrait of him painted by sir joshua reynolds soon after he had published his dictionary in the attitude of sitting in his easy chair in deep meditation which was the first picture his friend did for him which sir joshua very kindly presented to me and from which an engraving has been made for this work mr davies mentioned my name and respectfully introduced me to him i was much agitated and recollecting his prejudice against the scotch of which i had heard much i said to davies don't tell him where i come from from scotland cried davies roguishly mr johnson said i i do indeed come from scotland but i cannot help it i am willing to flatter myself that i meant this as a light pleasantry to soothe and conciliate him not as an humiliating abasement at the expense of my country but however that might be this speech was somewhat unlucky for with that quickness of wit for which he was so remarkable he seized the expression come from scotland which i used in the sense of being of that country and as if i had said that i had come away from it or left it retorted that sir i find is what a very great many of your countrymen cannot help this stroke stunned me a good deal and when we had sat down i felt myself not a little embarrassed and apprehensive of what might come next he then addressed himself to davies what do you think of garrick he has refused me an order for the play for miss williams because he knows the house will be full and that an order will be worth three shillings 
eager to take any opening to get into conversation with him i ventured to say oh sir i cannot think mr garrick would grudge such a trifle to you sir said he with a stern look i have known david garrick longer than you have and i know no right you have to talk to me on the subject perhaps i deserved this check for it was rather presumptuous in me an entire stranger to express any doubt of the justice of his animadversion upon his old acquaintance and pupil Footnote. That this was a momentary sally against Garrick there can be no doubt, for at Johnson's desire he had some years before given a benefit night at his theatre to this very person, by which he had got two hundred pounds. Johnson, indeed, upon all other occasions when I was in his company, praised the very liberal charity of Garrick. I once mentioned to him, it is observed, sir, that you attack Garrick yourself, but will suffer nobody else to do it. Johnson, smiling. Why, sir, that is true. Boswell, end of footnote. I now felt myself much mortified, and began to think that the hope which I had long indulged of obtaining his acquaintance was blasted and in truth had not my ardour been uncommonly strong and my resolution uncommonly persevering so rough a reception might have deterred me for ever from making any further attempts fortunately however i remained upon the field not wholly discomfited and was soon rewarded by hearing some of his conversation of which I preserved the following short minute without marking the questions and observations by which it was procured. People, he remarked, may be taken in once, who imagine that an author is greater in private life than other men. Uncommon parts require uncommon opportunities for their exertion. In barbarous societies, superiority of parts is of real consequence. Great strength or great wisdom is of much value to an individual. But in more polished times, there are people to do everything for money. And then there are a number of other superiorities, such as those of birth and fortune and rank, that dissipate men's attention and leave no extraordinary share of respect for personal and intellectual superiority. This is wisely ordered by Providence to preserve some equality among mankind. Sir, so this book, The Elements of Criticism, which he had taken up, footnote, by Henry Home, Lord Kames, three volumes, Edinburgh, 1762, see post-October the 16th, 1769. Johnson laughed much at Lord Kames's opinion that war was a good thing occasionally, as so much valour and virtue were exhibited in it. A fire, says Johnson, might as well be thought a good thing. There is the bravery and address of the firemen employed in extinguishing it. There is much humanity exerted in saving the lives and properties of the poor sufferers. 
yet after all this who can say a fire is a good thing johnson's works seventeen eighty seven volume eleven page two o nine end of footnote so this book the elements of criticism which he had taken up is a pretty essay and deserves to be held in some estimation though much of it is chimerical speaking of one who with more than ordinary boldness attacked public measures and the royal family he said i think he is safe from the law but he is an abuser of a scoundrel and instead of applying to my lord chief justice to punish him i would send half a dozen footmen and have him well ducked footnote number forty five of the north britain had been published on april the twenty third wilkes was arrested under a general warrant on april the thirtieth on may the sixth he was discharged from custody by the court of common pleas before which he had been brought by a writ of habeas corpus a few days later he was served with a subpoena from an information exhibited against him by the attorney-general in the court of king's bench he did not enter an appearance holding as he said the serving him with the subpoena as a violation of the privilege of parliament parliamentary history volume fifteen page one three six zero end of footnote the notion of liberty amuses the people of england and helps to keep off the tidium vitae when a butcher tells you that his heart bleeds for his country he has in fact no uneasy feeling sheridan's lectures on oratory anno domini seventeen sixty three sheridan will not succeed at bath with his oratory ridicule has gone down before him and i doubt derrick is his enemy Footnote. mr sheridan was then reading lectures upon oratory at bath where derrick was master of the ceremonies or as the phrase is king boswell dr parr who knew sheridan well describes him as a wrong-headed whimsical man i remember he continues hearing one of his daughters in the house where i lodged triumphantly repeat dryden's ode upon st cecilia's day according to the instruction given to her by her father take a sample number the brave number the brave numbered the brave to serve the fair naughty richard r b sheridan like gallio seemed to care naught for these things moore sheridan sheridan writing from dublin on december the seventh seventeen seventy one says never was party violence carried to such a height as in this session the house the irish house of parliament seldom breaking up till eleven or twelve at night from these contests the desire of improving in the article of elocution is become very general there are no less than five persons of rank and fortune now waiting my leisure to become my pupils ibid page sixty see post july the twenty eighth seventeen sixty three end of footnote derrick may do very well as long as he can outrun his character but the moment his character gets up with him it is all over 
it is however but just to record that some years afterwards when i reminded him of this sarcasm he said well but derrick has now got a character that he need not run away from I was highly pleased with the extraordinary vigour of his conversation, and regretted that I was drawn away from it by an engagement at another place. I had, for a part of the evening, been left alone with him, and had ventured to make an observation now and then, which he received very civilly, so that I was satisfied that, though there was a roughness in his manner, there was no ill-nature in his disposition. Davies followed me to the door, and when I complained to him a little of the hard blows which the great man had given me, he kindly took it upon him to console me by saying, Don't be uneasy. I can see he likes you very well. End of section 48